Hello and welcome to this edition of the NAESP Advocacy Podcast. My name is Danny Carlson. I'm NAESP's Assistant Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. On today's show, we're going to talk with Sarah Silverman. Sarah is a Senior Vice President at Whiteboard Advisors, which is a strategic consulting and communications firm. For over a decade, Sarah has advised state leaders on education, workforce, and wellness policy. During that time, she's assisted with the development of state policies that transform teacher and leader preparation, evaluation, and training. She's led the development of a national birth through workforce data dashboard and has facilitated coalitions to advance bipartisan policy solutions. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Sarah is whip smart. Uh, she's got a ton of experience working with uh, districts and schools and states on developing um, educator human capital systems, how to develop them, how to sustain them at scale. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our, our chat today. Uh, today we're gonna touch on a, a, a lot of interesting topics, uh, including ed tech uh, and data and, and, and ESSA and how all of these things impact principles. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Sarah, are you there? I am. Hey, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. Uh, well, good. Let's uh, l let's jump uh, right in. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting topics that uh, I'm excited to chat with you about. So um, let's talk a little bit about ed tech. Um, I think first of all, actually, before we um, jump too far in that, um, it's a it's a buzzword I would say, sort of in 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 education policy. When we're talking ed tech, what exactly do we mean? Uh, that's a great question. So when we think about ed tech, I think we, we cast a pretty wide net and think about um, the variety of tools available to educators um, and to, uh, to, to school leaders and to, to district personnel as well that help to support delivering instruction uh, or to, to help, uh, or sorry, rather, or help with the management of school functions. So um, that could be that could be everything from, from sort of like managing content uh, that educators call upon to deliver instruction all the way to, to uh, the content itself that gets delivered or the, the various tools that might be used um, to help students understand material better, interact in, in different ways and, and um, kind of leverage the, the vast amount of information that now uh, is available to teachers and to kids. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's helpful framing. Uh, so, what are some th what are some uh, trends that that you're seeing in um, sort of K twelve ed tech innovation? Sure. So, given that we cast such a, a wide net when we talk about ed tech, I'll I'll break that into a few different categories. So, um, I think a lot of folks are probably familiar with one to one initiatives uh, or efforts to to uh, go from what I suppose most of the folks who are who are leading schools today either. Uh, saw the entry of, of uh, end-user PCs into, into their schools uh, or, or had a, a handful of, of computers available um, at, at various grade levels but didn't necessarily have a device or, or um, a laptop or, or something in particular for every single student. Uh, so now, now in schools we're seeing a much bigger move toward one-to-one uh, -one hardware initiatives. About 60% uh, of folks are telling us that they've got a one-to-one -one initiative in place, uh, which is to say every student has access to some sort of device for all of their learning experiences. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that in 60% of cases that people are using um, those devices for all instruction, 
Uh, but it's it's now uh, for folks who, whose schools don't have um, don't have one device per student uh, or something close to it. They're they're now in the in the majority, still a large majority, but but now they're in uh, fewer rather than uh, than more. And uh, folks who are uh, adopting one to one initiatives are doing this across grade levels. Um, I know we've we've probably seen lots of research uh, over the course of the last few years demonstrating that that for very young young folks, uh, less screen time is better. Uh, and for older folks, moderate screen time is better. Uh, but a lot of folks in, in K-5 are reporting that they've got uh, tablet devices, which are primarily Apples, and, and uh, in middle and high school, reporting that they've got laptops, uh, which are primarily Chromebooks. Uh, and uh, analysts, uh, if you will, so folks, folks who are sort of commentators in ed tech uh, and in, in technology in general, are estimating that these numbers are going to kind of continue to grow to the point where we'll see almost complete saturation uh, in terms of one-to-one -one devices, students to kids. Mm. Um, so the second, and I'll just I'll go through these, and you should feel free to, to interrupt and, <laughs> and ask questions about them. But but in these kind of different domains, the second, of course, is, is software and apps. Um, and it, apps of course, have been growing in popularity, both in terms of in-school use and out-of-school use, uh, but not just the, the use of kind of individual uh, software technology tools, but the use of tools that help do things like organize thinking or create individual playlists, et cetera. And in particular, um, you know, softwares that are able to help customize learning experiences for students are really at top of mind for teachers. So consistently over the last few years, Educators, classroom teachers, and, and school leaders have been indicating at, at high rates uh, and growing rates that their top priority is the ability to personalize. And on some level, I think there's been some good um, there's there's been some good innovation here. Folks like uh, Leap Innovations in Chicago have developed a framework that, um, uh, that that helps kind of organize thinking around high quality personalized learning. And I would imagine that that folks who are listening may have had some. Uh, frustrating experiences trying to suss out exactly what personalized learning means uh, and, and then once they've figured that out trying to figure out so, so then what kinds of tools can help us uh, help us to get there so so uh, I think that there's been some good innovation in terms of uh, the, the kind of theoretical and practical framework around personalization uh, but when it comes to the actual technology itself that's still a really growing area uh, I know that um, that the Summit Learning Platform is one that's growing um, around the country. It's, it's a, a platform that's essentially being provided for free to help personalization. Uh, and there are some other tools there that I think uh, are very promising and could be quite helpful uh, as, as folks look to grow into that area. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting in this domain is, is not just the, the particular types of apps, but that um, of all the things that, that educators are citing that they use frequently in their classrooms, video is, is really on the rise. So uh, one source uh, reported that about 70% of educators are saying that they use video on a regular basis, which is a few times a week with their students. Uh, and that's up uh, about 40% in the last five years. So if you've noticed yourself watching more YouTube videos, uh, <laughs> you might, it might resonate with you uh, that, that educators are, are grabbing from YouTube and from other sources a lot of videos in their instructions. Kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, so, so you know, the, the two, you know, the way we usually bifurcate is, of course, hardware and software. But there, I think there are a couple of uh, other things um, 
that are, are interesting in this domain as well. One is, uh, I think, largely pushed, um, well, maybe partly pushed or at least echoed by ESSA, uh, is attention to the efficacy of, of products. So we, in the last 20 years, have seen, I think, pretty phenomenal growth in terms of the availability of, of both hardware and software tools. And folks have started to now have all of these options um, in front of them, they're starting to, I think, think really critically about what's what's good, what works, mm -hmm. what's, what 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 kind of information is available to make good decisions about what to adopt. And uh, so, from that perspective, the kind of demand for efficacy is on the rise. And I think that, you know, my, my take on that is it's a really good thing. I think we should really we we should be very thoughtful and careful about what we're adopting and why and, and what we hope to see with it. Um, one uh, one group in particular, a, a group out of uh, University of Virginia called the Jefferson Education Exchange, is is going to great lengths to try to to um, engage educators and others to be really thoughtful about not just whether tools work, but whether they work in particular environments and contexts in which they're implemented. Um, and in fact, <laughs> I was just at, I was just visiting a school today uh, where I live in Pittsburgh. And um, an educator that I was talking to was, was kind of lamenting that, well, there certainly is some evidence to support uh, some of the tools out there. The evidence that supports um, their, those tools use in schools like some of those in, in Pittsburgh, where there are folks come with, with um, a lot of kind of challenging contexts, including you know, infrequent ability or access to internet or or other types of things that, that we might take for granted, the efficacy of these tools is really in question. That, that, that data doesn't seem to be available to them, and it doesn't, doesn't necessarily seem to indicate, uh, simply because it doesn't exist, exist uh, you know, how to effectively implement tools with, with students from a variety of different contexts. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's something that's um, been really interesting to me, and I, I am really hopeful that, uh, particularly as educators are thinking about leveraging kind of their voices and their demand, their, their ability to kind of drive demand in the marketplace, that, that efficacy is at, at top of mind. Mm -hmm. So that's very helpful. And thanks for all, all, of, the, all of those um, sort of strands of, of, of this, of, of, of ed tech. Um, so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a principal. Uh, and um, obviously principals and, and sort of districts are are hit up uh, sort of constantly with, um, you know, various, n not just ed tech, um, various, you know, tools and, and programs and, and sort of this and that kind of flavor of the day. Um, but if you're a, a principal um, and something in the ed tech space, whether it's a tool um, or a product or something, what are, what would be your advice to sort of, what, what would be the things that you would encourage um, a principal to be looking at in terms of whether or not it's a, it's, it's something that that they should pursue. Yeah, I think that's a um, that sh that should be in a lot of ways a sort of central thesis question of uh, every purchase. So, um, yeah, what how do the people that ultimately are going to be uh, using it feel about it? Um, I was having a really interesting conversation yesterday with the with the district superintendent who was talking about the trend, the kind of purchasing trends uh, at, in school districts. So, so many of your principal members will probably recognize this, but the transition of 
purchasing decisions and buying power away from centralized districts uh, or district purchasing into uh, individual schools um, in a lot of ways creates great opportunity and uh, uh, and also I, I suppose create some additional responsibility uh, at the building level sure uh, so so I would say you know number one uh, the the school leaders buy-in and attitude matters a lot. Um, the extent to which a school leader um, is, a, is kind of an early adopter can mean the difference between the, you know, something taking hold in the building or not. In fact, our friends at, uh, at, at Blackboard um, collaborated on a, on a research project in, in which they kind of came to the conclusion that there are maybe kind of two categories of school leaders uh, a kind of traditional school leader and then the new learning leader, as I called it, uh, someone who was really kind of forward thinking about um, uh, the capabilities and possibilities of educational technologies. Um, and those folks were, were really likely to be thoughtful about how the typical work in a school can, um, can take place um, sort of most efficiently uh, leveraging educational technology. Uh, and so for, for those folks, um, yeah, they were much more likely to have more teachers in their building, have additional buy-in, uh, and, 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 and in general kind of have more positive thoughts about yeah, the capabilities of educational technology. But I think, um, building on that, you know, having a, having a sensibility about, um, what your school's, what, what your, your collective vision for what your school will accomplish and letting that drive decision making um, kind of still still prevails. I know that's a that's sort of like old fashioned idea, you know, school the school leader establishes the vision. Um, and it's less sort of like independently establishing the vision, but but um, more kind of creating an environment in which uh, innovations, whether they're educational technologies or or even intellectual innovations can thrive, uh, is particularly important as, as, and foundational for technology. Mm -hmm. And I would say you know, we have um, we have sort of macro data about uh, what's going on uh, in terms of, of like market size and and, and um, purchasing trends. So I would say the vast majority of sources right now are describing the educational technology market in K twelve in the United States at somewhere in the neighborhood of nine billion dollars. So pretty darn big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it's also suggesting that only about 30% of educational technologies that are purchased are actually being implemented, um, they are fully implemented. And wow. to me, that means, you know, 70% of that $9 billion might be getting underutilized at best and wasted at worst. Mm. So so it kind of leads to the question, why, why does that happen? And I think uh, if we're going to, if we're going to reverse that trend and get the maximum return on our ed tech investment dollars, uh, one unpacking exactly what might be happening in your school, but also kind of looking toward the, the bigger problem that is suggested, which is if we're purchasing these things and not implementing them, there's a divide between those making the purchasing decisions and those making the implementation decisions. Mm -hmm. So to close that, think about making sure your educators are actually using the tools and that they want the tools <laughs> that you're purchasing and that they have the support to implement them effectively. Mm -hmm.
Well, that's um, good. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, sort of like one final thing. I noticed a lot of frustration, um, particularly lately, because, you know, as I mentioned, the sort of big saturation uh, or, or, or like a, a much, I wouldn't necessarily say saturation, but like a big, big um, uh, world of available products and services to do all kinds of things. To the extent that you're, you're trying to get information and use it as effectively as possible, um, as an educator, uh, the fewer places that you have to go to get it and the clearer you are about what specific data should drive your activities every day, I think the less friction there is and the less um, distraction from the core of your work. Mm -hmm. And so also be thinking as a school leader about how to create an ecosystem that clarifies the key things or data points you need to be paid attention to and then brings those together in a way that's really easy to understand and digest and digest not not because educators are not are not sophisticated which they certainly are but because educators have a lot of other things going on in the extent to which you can reduce the effort required to look at at sort of key metrics and and, and leverage tools effectively the better mm -hmm. yeah so i want to so i want to um I want you to, so on the question of sort of the, the uptake or, or, the, or the lack of uptake, I guess, on, on some of these products, um, what's your sense in terms of the extent to which, I guess, um, sort of thinking about all the steps that happen from a standpoint of sort of purchasing and then um, sort of implementing. Um, so let's take some, let's just take a, um, a nameless tool or product um, that, um, I don't know, is going to transform a teacher's practice or certainly is, is going to help uh, um, teachers in a building um, do something. And principal has the idea to, um, to, to, to buy a product or a program and, and to sort of implement it school-wide. Um, is it, and I'm not suggesting, I'm, I'm, I'm truly asking, is, is, is there a challenge in that, that step where sort of integration into teacher's practice um, and actually, um, I don't know, them maybe not being um, part of that process and in, in a way where it's sort of thrust on, th th thrust upon them to sort of use uh, versus a more sort of, um, I don't know, approach where, you know, teachers are at the table sort of from the beginning and, and, and therefore it's a more sort of collaborative process. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think some people have cracked that nut and they've really thought about, um, all purchasing as coming up through the end user. Um, uh, and, but that can be really challenging because you can have, you can have four fourth grade teachers uh, <laughs> or, or um, you know, a, a dozen teachers in different grades thinking about different particular subject matters coming to you with 24 different tools. Sure. Um, and so how to, how to, properly vet everything and get, give every, everyone um, the opportunity to have their voice heard, I, I think is a real challenge. But I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a, the, the biggest problem is um, times when a minority of people have either an outsized voice in the, in identifying the tool or a willingness to, uh, to, to participate in uh, the adoption of new technologies, or if people have other tools that they'd rather use, um, that that I think is is driving 
some of this problem with purchasing licenses that that never get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So let me ask a question on on sort of the other side in terms of kind of ed tech. Um, so uh, ideally, right, uh, these products and, and programs, whatever they might be, um, should be thought of and sort of created to to solve a problem or solve uh, a challenge. Um, would you say that sort of in general that sort of ed tech um, is is doing that, that they're that from the standpoint of um, trying to trying to solve problems and, and sort of, if so, how? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that in some cases folks are coming to the market because they have experienced um, particular shortcomings in like domains or content areas. So for those folks, I think, you know, it, it, the, the problem that they're trying to solve for is access to content. So, so I think a lot of, a lot of product offerings like computer science, uh, for example, are, are coming from a, a the, the perception of a direct need to be able to teach kids more about computer science. Um, uh, you know, I know and, and code.org has been doing a tremendous amount of work uh, to try to bring free access to resources around computer science education uh, and I absolutely think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a problem to be solved, not just from the standpoint that there are an estimated five to six million open jobs right now, and two or three million of those are, uh, are, are computing jobs. Um, and, and so, like, it, they're solving for the problem of, of, of like, much needed uh, employee pipeline, but, but also because um, there's a lot of, I think, really important um, integration of a lot of different sort of concept areas in computer science. So, yeah, when I, when I say, yes, I think that most are solving for problems. I I think about that pretty, pretty broadly. Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, I'm thinking of, of uh, the folks at, um, at a company called Able, which is doing some work to try to make it easier to use time better in schools. And and they've got a, a way of helping school and district leaders to be, um, I, I, I don't I want to say more thoughtful. I think people are very thoughtful, uh, but helping people to be a lot more systematic about the ways that they're, for example, organizing everything from bell schedules to calendars. And, you know, it's kind of funny because there are lots of folks uh, that are involved in this company that, um, that do have education experience and there are lots that don't. Uh, but I think they did a really good job of going on a listening tour and trying to really understand what people needed or what would help actually make a contribution um, to challenges that folks are facing. And that's how, that's how Able got started. Um, you know, similarly, you know, and, and, and that's like, that's on the scheduling side, a little bit more logistical. Similarly, uh, uh, companies like Nearpod, which has a, an interactive platform that's, that's actually an instructional support tool that helps uh, give teachers a, a, an opportunity to present information and make sure that all of their students are looking at that very same information and interacting um, with the information uh, through kind of a single portal. There too, the, the, the kind of founding story is about uh, looking around at a need uh, then talking to teachers about it, exploring with them what might be most helpful, and actually building a tool that they brought to market. So, 
Yeah, cer certainly there are, are actors that I think are like, you know, what would be neat is if we could tap into <laughs> this $9 billion market. But I actually think that's fairly rare. Um, and those folks, they, they, they might show up and they fizzle out pretty quickly. So I think uh, to the extent that I have seen folks be good and, and, and uh, effective in understanding the problem that they're actually solving for, or that they're helping educators solve for, um, that has kind of dictated their success. Mm -hmm. No, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, super interesting. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. So um, I guess one of the, uh, I guess, concerns always with, with technology is, is, is sort of around privacy. Um, and especially when we're talking about um, students, how do you, how do you think about privacy as it relates to sort of all, all of all things ed tech. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge concern, and I think it should be. Um, I think that efforts, including um, uh, uh, like SOPIPA in the United States and uh, um, uh, uh, GDPR, have actually done a lot in the last year to or last few years. GDPR in the last year. Uh, have actually done a lot to, to kind of set a standard for student data privacy that um, that I think at least has established a set of best practices. Um, the FBI recently re released a report um, uh, in terms of uh, the, sort of the state of the field and, and analysis of, of where EdTech stands, tech in general, but EdTech in particular, uh, when it comes to being able to kind of support students' engagement with technology tools without uh, potentially, without breaching or potentially breaching any of their, of their private information. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, um, and, and, and I, I, it probably doesn't go without saying that numerous states, um, I would say in the last three to five years, um, or and maybe even a few more than that, numerous states have also passed, passed laws um, so I, I would say sort of from like a regulatory uh, framework standpoint, I think we've made a ton of progress around student data privacy. And uh, everyone that I have come into contact with, but I would say virtually all actors uh, in the space work very, very diligently to comply with those requirements. Um, even folks who, who touch the education space uh, almost by accident, in my experience, um, you know, like some of the language learning apps that are, are designed for, for public use um, have been really thoughtful and careful about making sure that, that privacy protections um, are in place so that uh, one, they're not running afoul of the law, but two, they are recognizing the critical importance of protecting data for, for students under, under 18, um, which may be even more sensitive, of course, than, than for adults who have a little bit more Mm -hmm. um, of a say in what gets, what gets collected and shared. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the, uh, the long and the short of it, I think is, um, we've got the right regulatory frameworks in place. Uh, e educators should definitely demand demonstration that any vendor that they're working with, uh, has the right protections in place as well. Um, but because, because we have those strong protections, uh, I think there's a, there's a, it, it's reasonable to, to largely rely upon compliance with those, um, with those regulations as a, as a good indicator that your student's data, it's safe. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear that concern. I think generally just with, um, you know, especially all of, all of the, the sort of tools, right. Um, and, and apps and just things that, um, you know, that, that, that principals, um, see on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, in their schools or with their teachers or, you know, or apps on, um, their student, their students' phones is just how to, how to manage all that and, and, and how to have a, how to be able to, to, to have something that, that works and is useful, but is also, um, is, is mindful of sort of those concerns. Um, so how about ed tech as it relates to, um, fulfilling a need for sort of rural schools? Um, I, I see the, um, the opportunity to reach, um, to reach schools in, in ways that, that might not have been possible 10, 20 years ago. Um, at the same time, um, a big challenge with rural schools um, often, of course, though, is, is sort of broadband. So there's this kind of upside potential, but then challenge too. Um, yeah, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, well, I think you, you probably know this really well from, from work with um, Education Superhighway and others that uh, <laughs> there certainly has been a historical challenge with not just getting fiber to, um, to schools and, and public libraries and places where people are learning and studying, but getting a sufficient amount of bandwidth to be able to leverage some of these great tools. So I think yeah, the great thing is the progress that we've made in part, I think with the support of E-Rate, um, which I think has been really positive in this regard, but also because in general uh, building partnerships to try to bring more live fiber um, to the places that, that need it most. So, so I, I'm not sure exactly who, who to give credit to. I think it's everybody's been pitching in, uh, but I think we've got way more access uh, now than we've ever had before. Hmm. So, so I think, uh, and that's, that's of course half of the equation, <laughs> uh, uh, getting that access to people and making it usable. It, it, I think we're presented a little bit with a challenge from the standpoint that in a lot of cases, it, uh, I think we got to a point where we had a, a kind of cart before the horse. So I remember, um, a few years back taking a trip to the southernmost school in the United States. Uh, and it, it was a school that was far from, from pretty much anything else. It was a really, really small town. Uh, and the, the had lots of amazing people working there. So it was, it was like very rich in human resources. And it was also very rich in device resources. So it was like, I think they had two or three devices per kid wow. <laughs> uh, in this elementary school that I was visiting. Um, but they they were kind of like stacked up in a in a warehouse, um, not because educators didn't want to use them, but because there wasn't a good way of leveraging them. Um, a, a good chunk of the students who attended that school. Um, you know, not only didn't, didn't have access to a lot of resources, but, but were homeless. Um, and so they, they didn't, they very reliably did not have access to things like internet, uh, at home or the ability, uh, to kind of take advantage of these devices. And I think, you know, like we could argue about how rural they were, but I think it's a really analogous, um, 
it's a really analogous challenge to what's happened, I think, in some rural school districts, which is uh, we you know, tried to provide all kinds of devices and access to those devices before we were really able to provide the kind of um, uh, broadband access that they need to leverage them effectively. And so we have a little bit of recovering to do from the, the period of unreliability of the tools and devices hmm. um, that were available to them. And so, you know, and I think a lot of school leaders um, who are working in rural areas are, are very forward thinking and always looking about looking for ways to, to solve problems. Um, you know, whether those are just sort of like the daily problems of, of school leadership um, or the what might be increasing challenges of, for example, people moving away from small towns and toward larger cities which means there are fewer people, which means there are potentially fewer teachers. Hmm. Um, and so, and so then trying to, to figure out how to leverage technology to address that. And I think, um, I think that there has been um, a, a lot of great innovation, people being willing to take risks like scheduling a class where they've got their students interacting with devices uh, and, and a teacher is some, in some other location, uh, teaching the kids via the device. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I still think that we have a lot of we have a lot of distance to travel when it comes to figuring out the right role of human capital um, in a in an era when we have a shrinking population of teachers. Uh, we've got a really quickly evolving technology landscape. So, like, um, you know, in a, in a I, I mentioned earlier, there's a, an extraordinary interest in personalization uh, in a world where we're, we're doing more personalization. Can a, can a teacher, a great teacher, um, uh, provide education or, or support the learning of more students? Um, and if we think the answer to that is absolutely, then, then sort of the corollary is, so how, do we, how can we leverage our technologies to do that? And I also think, you know, as the technology evolves, ha evolves, how do we help make sure that our teachers and school leaders are abreast of what that evolution actually looks like? Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think training probably needs to evolve a little bit to, to reflect that. Um, really great professional learning probably needs to be developed uh, to reflect that. But um, overall, I think we have a, we have a, a kind of design challenge afoot more than anything else. That's about how we create, how we leverage all of the, the, the systems and resources that are now available to us through these technologies um, to create our ideal learning scenarios, uh, given all of our current constraints. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. That's super helpful. Uh, something that mentioned, something that you mentioned when you're talking about uh, personalized personalization and kind of personal, personalized learning is just a sort of another, I'll, I'll say trend in education, uh, certainly one that uh, um, our members, I think, think about a lot in, and that is SEL. Um, I was thinking though about it is I could see some opportunities certainly for certainly technology to advance and sort of support SEL at the same time and thinking about what SEL is, social emotional learning, um, is that an is that an oxymoron that that technology can can support <laughs> social and emotional learning um, in a way? So yeah, just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. Can can um, can metal and wires uh, help us develop very human, very uniquely <laughs> human skills? Right. Uh, 
Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really fascinating question, and I think it's one um, that we could we could approach in a variety of ways. So, uh, you know, it, people I think also <laughs> there there are no doubt um, social emotional learning kind of purists who have a very clear idea and definition of what constitutes social emotional learning, and then I think there's sort of <laughs> the reality of what's happening in the field, which is that we we have we have dozens probably of different definitions on ideas and concepts that kind of get tucked under this umbrella of social emotional learning. And many of those things um, benefit from a systematic measurement and they benefit from um, integration into a variety of different learning activities. So taking that first part, systematic measurement. So, um, Organizations like the National School Climate Center are working with schools and districts, probably as we speak, uh, to help them measure the current climate in their schools uh, and, and sort of the, the nature of the culture in the schools. And that's something that uh, could be assisted quite literally uh, through the use of technology. And that technology can can collect information. It can provide it can provide sort of a basis for um, information analysis. Uh, it can be it can be used to sort of manage the administrative functions of what um, pretty much probably every school needs to know to be uh, you know to, to be forward thinking and and effective in terms of building a really strong school climate. Uh, that's pretty different from the other piece, which is 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 like actually helping students develop skills, and, uh, although not insignificant. But, but so the second piece, actually helping students develop skills and, and thinking about that through the lens of integrating social emotional learning into all learning that students are doing, that's where I think there's really kind of cool and fascinating opportunity to evolve even further. So, mm. uh, you know, if for example, we were able to leverage tools that help students learn math um, and uh, integrate into the way that students interact with those tools, practice for social emotional learning. Uh, then I think, you know, we, we could probably one help students get stronger um, in terms of their ability to sort of uh, reach and digest the core content. Uh, and build their SEL skills. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, again, earlier, I, I know I said <laughs> there, there are SEL purists, and then there is sort of like the reality of when the rubber meets the road, how we define SEL. So some people might, might uh, quibble with this uh, particular example, but bear with me. Um, but, but I think about an organization that's doing this in a really uh, impressive way is, is, a, is a group called Agile Mind. Agile Mind integrates learning about growth mindset uh, and with essentially implementation of growth mindset. So, and it's a focus on helping students that are behind uh, catch up and pass algebra um, in, in to sort of the end of middle school, beginning of high school years. Uh, and, and many of you who are listening will know that, that reaching that threshold is a huge indicator for, for high school graduation. So it's really, really important and critical time. But what they have done, um, was, was essentially leverage research on how people learn math with research on 
um, how people learn to be persistent, essentially adopting some sort of growth mindset, and put them together in the same program. Mm. And they've seen incredible outcomes as a result. So uh, I think that is, a, that is a really promising model for ways that technology can not just um, enhance, but actually give students the opportunity to practice these skills that are not directly academic, but support students' general development and also their ability to, to be academically successful. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how that, how that develops um, over the next few years um, in, in terms of what's happening in schools. Uh, speaking of the next uh, coming years, put you on the spot a little bit. Um, always curious to kind of get um, your take on what you see um, kind of around the corner. So I know you're traveling a lot, you're in schools and you're in districts and in states. Um, if you had to um, put up, I don't know, provide some, a trend or, or something that, that you think that not a lot of folks are talking about now, but in 10 or 15 years, um, a lot more folks will be talking about. What would that be? Um, I, I, I'll say this, I think, is cheating a little bit from the standpoint that I think it sort of builds on something people are talking about right now. Uh, but but um, un, I think unlocks us from the traditional paradigm of school. So. Historically, we built an education system that was really focused on bringing together students with at least a similar age <laughs> um, into a classroom, sharing a consistent uh, form of information with them, asking them to demonstrate to us that they understood that information and then, and then kind of move them on. Over time, we've recognized that students have, they come from different contexts and different backgrounds, and so we might need to do things like differentiate our instruction to meet our students' needs. At present, there's a, a near obsession with this notion of personalized learning, and I think for really good reason, because there's recognition that, in fact, um, each individual is going to is going to proceed, accelerate, decelerate um, at an idiosyncratic pace when it comes to content that they need to, to understand and be able to apply. Uh, and I think the thing that comes after that is is a complete um, uh, separation between a reliance on the traditional school framework uh, and the learning of information for for students in the future. And so I think, yeah, if if I if I was looking in, in the crystal ball, uh, I might I, I might buck the trend a little bit because I think you know if, you, if, we, if we look back in history what we saw is like a pendulum switch or, or a pendulum shift and and you know every 20 years the same thing comes back again right uh, I, I think I think we might ultimately actually see an evolution on schooling and, and I think the way that we've seen um, folks start to, to to leverage charter schools and independent schools and other um, kind of unique school environments is going to potentially continue to grow um, and, and we're going to start seeing people look at totally different alternative ways of learning in different settings. Uh, and I, I'm inspired a little bit by some of the efforts that I've seen various school districts engaged in where, where students are, you know, literally leaving the building and they're going to other places and they're, they're learning 
uh, in environments that are more natural or they're learning in environments that shift um, from day to day so that they can get access to real, real life and world problems. Uh, I, I think that there are, um, there are great examples all over the country of places where folks have started to create schools that are really about um, real, complex, uh, um, meaningful problems that students get to engage in and, and work together to solve. And they're extremely engaging for kids because, you know, they're real. <laughs> they're real. Uh, yeah. And they don't try to break apart um, some of the conceptual uh, elements that I think historically we thought were essential to break apart. Uh, they really kind of put people in, in, and kids in the middle of, of things that, that are either immediately relevant in their lives or that can engage them and suck them in and really get them hyper-focused on a particular issue. Mm -hmm. So I think people will be talking about um, the ways that, that those kinds of environments create the right types of thinkers, learners, problem solvers, uh, and how we can leverage that in the future. Fascinating. You know, I, I just thought about this when you were sort of talking about that and it, it, it got me kind of thinking that maybe, I don't know, you, you, you sort of hear these surveys, right, from sort of business leaders and like what they're saying in terms of what they need in, in, in the future workforce. And there's, there's been all this emphasis on sort of what, what soft skills and being able to be, um, to work with others and to, um, to be resourceful and sort of all these things. Um, and, and, and I wonder if, if kind of what you were just talking about there, I, I wonder if, if that's not a sort of blend of um, the, those, I, I don't know if there's a better term than, than sort of soft skills, but working with others and, and sharing and sort of all those things um, and sort of uh, mixed with, you know, the, the hard, the hard reading skills and, and math and, and being able to do that well. So that um, I guess that's part of kind of what is the, well-rounded education, but, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like anything, uh, these ideas, they, they sometimes, uh, are much, they become, they, they come to, to our, our psyche <laughs> as, as a theory first. Sure. Uh, but I, I think we're already seeing the foundation and the roots of these, these much more, um, real world and, uh, and sort of interesting and engaging, types of uh instructional environments yeah. and i would love to see them continue to grow absolutely absolutely um okay one last question um you are on a podcast for principals and um and it's an advocacy podcast so i'm gonna get your uh take on this um i try to ask almost everyone who who's on um what's your advice for principals and engaging in advocacy and, and uh, why it's important for, for them to use uh, their voice as principles um, and, and the impact that you think that they can have. Yeah, uh, I was in a school today and I don't get to go to schools nearly enough, but it, uh, it really reminded me how much it matters to see, to, to see what's actually happening on the ground in real classrooms and to connect um, the true experiences and context and challenges uh, of schools with, um, <laughs> with the policy and regulatory uh, environments uh, in which the, the rules are made. I think even, even those of us, you know, I was a teacher a long, a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been in schools a lot, but even, even those of us who have been in those environments, need to have need me need, need to have conversations with people 
who are there today and, and doing the work today because it changes and evolves. You might not feel it when you're there day to day, but it changes and evolves so rapidly that even those of us with really great intentions in the policy world or in the, in the technology development world for that matter, um, we can't do a good job without your voice. Uh, and I think to, to some extent you may, you know, that, uh, those of you who've been in, in education for the last, the last couple of decades, you might feel like you've seen evidence of that, but I think um, the more that the, that the, the um, art of, of school leadership uh, and to some extent, you know, the science of school leadership is brought to bear on um, the, the necessity in some cases or the, um, or the perceived necessity to create policies and to promulgate um, rules and regulations that are helpful. Um, the more that those can be married together, the better. Uh, so it, it, it's, it probably is incumbent upon those in the, in the policy world to be more proactive about inviting your voice in, um, but don't wait for that. Uh, as much as possible, find the ways that you can insert your voice in the conversation because it absolutely belongs there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's great advice. And um, I, I think that's absolutely spot on. So I appreciate that and appreciate you, you coming on and, and, and chatting. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, like I always do every time I talk to you, I, I learn a lot. Um, so <laughs> uh, appreciate the conversation and uh, Sarah, we'll chat soon. Awesome. Thanks Danny for the chance. And, uh, and if anybody uh, hears this and is interested in, in, in learning more, uh, please don't hesitate to send them my way. Thanks so much. 